Psalm 84. To the, to the choir master, according to the Gita, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faint for the court of the Lord. My, ha my heart and flesh sink for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Sila. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Becca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestowed favor and honor. No good thing does he behold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one whose trust in you. This is the word of God. Some years ago, I was at a conference in Colorado and we had a free afternoon. So a small group of us decided we would go to Rocky Mountain National Park. One of the guys with us was really into fitness. You could see it just by looking at him. He wasn't a bodybuilder, but he was clearly very strong, the kind of person who lifts heavy things and perhaps does tricks where you wave in the wind like a flag on the side of a pole, that sort of thing. Uh, but he was struggling one or two hours into, you know, we were just walking up uh, for about three hours, hiking up a mountain. And he was having a tough time of it. Now, there's a, a lot of explanations, just the altitude that's going to cause a lot of difficulties. But uh, what's interesting is you wouldn't look at him who was having trouble keeping pace and needing to stop and sit and say, this guy is weak. Um, and I don't know, but just looking at him and knowing myself, my guess is in terms of traditional strength, this guy is way stronger than me. If we were to... Um, have a competition of lifting heavy things. He would lift much more than I could lift and do all sorts of uh, gymnastic tricks. I'm, I would put my money on him. But when it comes to just walking straight for three hours up a mountain, he had a tough time of it. So it's not that he was weak, but that his fitness preparation just didn't prepare him for this different context. Now I'm beginning by talking about strength and weakness because Many people think that Christianity encourages weakness, it promotes weakness, and to a certain degree that charge is fair in terms of 
the church is a bunch of struggling people. Sometimes we can have a kind of escapist view um, where our faith keeps us from engaging our problems or this idea of God who does all things for us stirs a passivity in us and so we're not really proactive. Uh, but that's not the design of the Christian life. That's just how it takes shape for many of us. But, but actually, Christianity is meant to strengthen us. Um, but one of the issues that people don't see that is because of a very different understanding of what strength is, what true strength is. And in that sense, often when people think Christianity promotes weakness, it's because they don't understand what Jesus was really doing, um, which is true of every topic. And one of the, the reasons that Jesus doesn't simply say, here's a few things that I'm going to offer to you and then, you know, do what you like with them. But he says, trust me, uh, walk with me, enter life with me, is because what he's doing really is revolutionary, transformative. And therefore, he was misunderstood by everyone around him on every topic. And in a world that has a certain view of what strength is and what it looks like, what Jesus is doing, which is talking about true strength, uh, is misunderstood, and therefore some people find him weak or his followers weak and don't find it appealing or don't realize in walking with him how he is actually strengthening us. And so one example of the way that, that uh, we perceive of strength, so actually in most of what you would do in New York, physical strength is probably not necessary. In certain contexts it would be helpful and, and being fit is certainly fine, but physical strength is not the ultimate advantage in most spheres. What's more typical in any circle is, is a form of power of something like status. So that, that will be the kind of strength that, depending on your circles, the status may be different. It could be certain possessions. You know, I wear these sneakers, I own this car. Uh, it could be certain experiences. You know, I go to these places. It could be certain achievements. Here's what I've done. But, but those are our forms of power that then we go into the world that give us confidence. And, and the trouble is with status, if wherever you go, if you don't have those markers, then you feel vulnerable and nobody likes the experience of being weak. And so if you hang out with people where being good looking is valued and you don't feel good looking, you feel like you don't belong. If you're going places where people uh, know the rich and the famous and the powerful and you don't know anyone, you can't drop any names, then you feel vulnerable. And it's that experience of weakness that we say, uh, you know, it, it, we may not think explicitly in those terms, but it's the kinds of things that makes us afraid to go out or makes us want to quit and give up. And the alternative is to, to learn the rules and play by them, in which case we have a kind of self-confidence that can get us pretty far. But it's exactly that kind of thing that Jesus is critiquing, to say, well, there's this outward status kind of thing of how people organize themselves, but when it comes to life, and that's what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about life in its fullness. It's not that those things are completely irrelevant because in a full, robust life, sure, working hard and accomplishing good things and knowing people who do great things, all of that's wonderful when those are not ends in themselves. But when those are your ultimate things, what Jesus is saying is you may be appearing to everybody else to be growing in strength, but you are becoming fundamentally weak, which is why high-status people could be emotionally very vulnerable as one example. What Jesus is saying is it's not that those things are irrelevant because he comes to speak to the whole of life, but when you're talking about the kingdom, then those markers actually have no currency with God. So look, if you um, are bright and hardworking and talented and have done great things, 
That is wonderful. Jesus is not opposing that. But if we think God is sitting in heaven and thinking, boy, I'm going to bring a few more people into my church, and there's one I could really use. Uh, who better? Who, who could accomplish more for the kingdom than this person given their track record? And that natural thinking is what Jesus is challenging is to say, look, the kinds of things that people have for status, you could be rich or you could be poor. Um, that's not going to be the determinant whether or not you're here. You could have done great things or you could have done nothing. When it comes to life as it's found in God, those are not the ultimate things. And therefore, there's a vulnerability in believing Jesus because it feels like if I'm no longer living for these markers, now I feel like I'm going out in weakness because people don't appreciate and respect what I'm trying to do. And, and if I'm not keeping up with those other things, well, then I will lose my social capital or whatever it is. And so we could feel that the invitation to follow Christ is the path of weakness, and it certainly is. Jesus is up front with that. But he will lift up the humble, and what he's saying is that if you follow me, you will not be building an outward kind of strength that helps you succeed, but you will be building an inward kind of strength that brings out the fullness of life, that actually helps you when your outward strength fails. It helps you to keep going. So what I want to do today is look at Psalm 84. We've been looking at Psalm 84 for two weeks. And last week when we looked at it, one of the things we noted is that it's a God-centered psalm, somebody who basically has seen something of the grace and glory of God, and it's gripped him. He, he's, he's realized there's nothing better than that, and so now his heart is set towards that. So the psalm has the imagery of the place where God's people gathered. In his context, it was the temple in Zion, in Jerusalem. That's no longer there, but at his time period, where God is is where God's people will go, and I want to be among God's people. And so we're talking about the importance of, of assembling, of gathering as we are today to worship God. It seems like just another thing on the religious checklist, but if you really understand uh, the vision of Psalm 84 and the whole of the Bible, we're actually invited into something. What we highlighted last week is, is where we experience joy or where we're seeking a true joy. Today what I want to highlight is that the weekly pattern of coming together to do the simple things we're doing, to pray, to read the Bible, to encourage one another, is a means that God uses over the course of the months and the years to strengthen us. Our gathering for worship is a chief means of how God will strengthen you. And so I want to talk about this gathering, this, this coming with, with uh, sort of uh, uh, three possible directions, forward, upward, and outward. And I want to begin by talking about uh, the forward reality of how the life God calls us to and how the assembling to worship is something God uses to strengthen us. Many of you are natural goal setters, but not everybody is. But even those who don't explicitly set goals and then create a plan on how to get there, uh, there is an intuitive goal setting. In other words, there's something that we see that we think, I like that, I value that, I want that. So some of you will name it a very particular thing. You want to go to law school, so there's that thing you want. Some of you haven't named it, but, but, there, but you just have this intuitive sense that you're drawn to certain things. The, the advantage of knowing what it is, though, is because when you have a goal, it actually can serve to strengthen you. And so um, if there's something that you see that is valuable, that excites you, that you want, that provides a present strength along the way um, because life is hard and things don't always go well. So, for example, if you want to go to law school, 
not in some superficial way because your parents told you or because you realized that that would be a good way to earn a lot of money. Not that those aren't factors, but I'm talking about if you really, if you look and you say, I want that, then in your undergraduate classes when you don't feel like studying, you are strengthened to say, well, I don't feel like studying, but I have this thing that I really want and this is important, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. <laughs> that goal uh, has the potential to, to bring something strengthening in the present. And, and the kinds of things we question as a church, which is what are your goals? And so career goals are good, relationship goals are good, health, health goals are good, recreation and enjoyment goals are good. The problem is when those are the end goals, when there's nothing beyond them, then you reach what you set out for and you realize it's empty and there's nothing. What Psalm 84 reminds us of is that there is something greater, there's transcendence, power and glory in God. And it's not that then there are separate things, your religious life, your work life, your relational life, but there's this focus of what's forward, what's ahead of you, and that helps you then as you're moving towards your career goals and your social aspirations and your recreational things. And, and that actually provides true strength because it gives you a freedom if in your career goals <laughs> they're not working out. It allows you the freedom to say, well, maybe I should just quit because my identity is not bound up in here. Or maybe I should keep going because, you know, do all things to God's glory. Maybe, maybe he's calling me to come back and try again harder. And so it doesn't tell you exactly what to do in any particular situation, but having, having that sense before you that there's a, a, a direction for the whole of my life that then infuses all of the particular parts of life is a way that we're strengthened. So verse 5 of Psalm 84, how do we get blessing? Well, here's one way. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. So there's a strength we have, but it's not a strength in us. Because all of us, if it's only self-confidence, will face something greater than our strength. Um, and the greatest example of that is death. None of us have figured out how to conquer it. But there are the smaller deaths of the social humiliation, the rejection, those sorts of things. All of us have to realize we will face things bigger than ourselves. We need something more than self-confidence. It doesn't say, blessed are those who have strength in them. In his prayer, blessed are those whose strength is in you. And there's a strength we have that's different than a superficial self-confidence. It's this transcendent vision of God who is strong. Uh, that when we look to him and realize there's something great there, that gives us the kind of strength that doesn't have the, the corruptions that damage us or those around us. And so there's a blessing of those who have a strength in God, a God-centered strength, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now the word Zion is not in the original, but in, in, in the original Hebrew. But in terms of trying to translate that, it makes sense in terms of the context, but the New International Version, for example, says something about those who are on pilgrimage. Uh, but the image of this highway um, in our hearts, it's like there's a compass, not a map, because a map tells you where to go. But a compass tells you what direction, and a map would be nicer. <laughs> Because, you know, sometimes if you're, if you're driving and you have Google Maps and it, it tells you, you know, make a right here and you're thinking, why do I make a right? But it's factored in traffic. So it's actually uh, improving things, but it seems like you're going the wrong way. Um, it would be nice if we had that for everything in life. Oh, I'm not enjoying this. What should I do? And then you're told what to do next. We have a compass that points us in the direction. But sometimes in life, it's not straightforwardly there. And so, so occasionally you have to, you feel like you're going the wrong direction. Um, but you stay oriented. And so this concept of these highways 
that flow from our hearts. It's not that God has a, a carrot out there that he's trying to draw us along, but there's something that, that as we are in God, God is in us, and it sets a direction, and that direction strengthens us for whatever we face along that pilgrimage, whatever we face along that um, meandering. And so in verse 7 it says, they go from strength to strength. And there's a sense here in which there's a pattern of, of growing in strength, and sometimes it's by failing, it's by feeling weakness, um, but that's part of where we, we, we deepen in a strength that is in God, and that's going from strength to strength. As I was thinking about it this week, I'm just thinking about that weekly pattern of coming here for worship, where, where uh, one of the things we're doing, there's, there's multiple things, but in looking to God for encouragement or for help or for healing or for guidance, all of those things will, will help you deal with whatever happened in the week before, but help prepare you in what is in the week ahead. So you're going from strength to strength. The Sunday gathering is a strengthening place. You go from strength and then back out into the world and you're vulnerability where you face your weakness, then come back. And that pattern, that proactive pattern is part of uh, the Bible's uh, plan of God's people assembling every week to come and remember these things. There's a strengthening component to it. And, and you see this in other, uh, other areas about the importance of being proactive, uh, not waiting until you're exhausted to reach out for help. And, and here's two potentially opposite examples. One is the, the ultra-marathon runner, the person who thinks that 26 miles is a warm-up. You know, you're going to run 100 miles. If you're going to run 100 miles, you need to really know yourself and have a plan for your pacing. Um, because when you're running 100 miles, there's no sh if you stop to walk, nobody's going to laugh at you at the end and be like, oh, yeah, he ran 100 miles, but he walked four of them. Well, have you run 96 miles? Okay, if the guy walked four of those miles, that's still good. But so what you don't want to do is, is run till you're completely exhausted at mile 52 and then figure out how you're going to get through the rest. You come to know yourself, and maybe you know four minutes of every hour. I'm going to, and actually, I don't know much about, I'm not an ultramarathon runner, so don't take fitness techniques from me here. Uh, but as I imagine, or maybe you say, on every 15th mile, I will walk a quarter of a mile, however it works. But there's a proactive sense where you build that in. But here's the opposite example. Um, what does that ultramarathon runner need? They need rest, and what they would want is most to sit down. So sitting down, isn't that something you could do for long periods of time? Until you're on that plane and you're going to Beijing or to New Zealand or someplace like that. And now you're on the plane, you know, for 14 hours. Get the aisle seat. You know, you don't want to sit for 14 hours. Isn't, well, then you're just resting. Isn't rest wonderful? Well, no, but you'd, you also need to have a plan for getting up every hour or two and just go to the bathroom, even if you have to, don't have to go to the bathroom, but you need to get up or, or you could get blood clots or all these threatening things that, uh, that, that just sitting can do to you. Having that pacing, that plan, is just part of an overall health plan. A spiritual health plan requires not waiting until you're desperate to return to God. But that weekly pattern of saying, I'm not going to wait till things fall apart, or I'm not going to wait till God calls me to something, but every week I'm going to come and I'm going to say, Lord, how are we doing? What's coming up in the week ahead? And that is part of that forward moving, that pilgrimage, that sense in which we're walking with God, we're going to a place that he's leading us, and along the way through life, we need to have these check-ins. And so there's a forward moving component. Um, there's also an upward 
component. So here's the second thing I want to talk about. So um, Psalm 84, we're moving forward. We're, we're on a pilgrimage. There's a highway. We're, we're trying to draw near to God. And so we go through this world. But the second image is the upward image, the worship image, the idea that God is above all. And so I want to talk about the, the upward. Now, I used as one example of how power works or how we perceive of strength in the world through status. Because with status, there's an upward sense. You know, humans have this instinct for mobility. We certainly don't want others looking down at us. And while we may not admit that we would like to look down on others, if we have to choose between the two, it's easier to deal with your pride, <laughs> so we think, than to deal with our vulnerability. Um, it's this upward sense that weekly worship helps keep us in check because it reminds every one of us, no matter who you are in the city, we are a people before a God who is greater than all. And that distance between us and God is not meant to humiliate us or to terrify us. It's meant to, to keep us in a healthy, strong place because that God is not just out there, but that God is with us. And therefore, if your strength is in God, gathering not to, to have a time where we brag about ourselves and what we've done this week, but where we, we forget about that aspect of ourselves and we, we boast in the Lord. There's something there about something above us that actually captures and renews our hearts when it's, it's not somebody who's greater than us in a threatening way, that they're going to hold a position, the reins of power, on, until you could dethrone them. But as somebody who can never be dethroned, but who's generous and kind, that actually strengthens us. It encourages us because God says, you have a share in that. In my kingdom, um, you will get a new identity and a new inheritance and a new hope. And that strengthens us. And so in verse 9, it says, behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. The anointed would be God's king, God's servant. From a Christian perspective, it's the Messiah, Jesus. Look on the face of your anointed. We have this one person sent by the Father, greater than any of us. But his greatness doesn't humiliate us. His greatness draws us in. And so uh, looking there strengthens us. But this idea of a shield, because a shield is something that, that, that we need over us. You know, if in the ancient waging of war where people have arrows and spears or they come by on horses and they're trying to, you know, smash you with whatever they have in their hand, having something over you at that time is very helpful. So, so God is a shield. The fact that God is over us, is bigger, is greater, and is powerful is only threatening if we're in competition, if we want that for ourselves. <laughs> but if, we're, if we feel like we're being assaulted in, in our weakness, then having God as a shield is actually quite an encouragement. God is a protector. There's something great above us that will keep us from being destroyed. And so verse 11, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. There are all these good things that come down from God, and therefore the greatness of God is an encouragement. He's a protector. He's a provider. And that's um, very different from how things often work in the world where we imagine that the best thing is for me to be at the top of the pyramid, the top of the hierarchy. That's when I'll feel strong. That's where I'll feel confident. That's where I'll feel secure, except that when you function within that realm, you know that the people under you are vying for your position. And so the now the, now the attacks are coming from underneath. There's something about this picture where God is over all. And if humanity grasps that as a whole, if we start to say, you know, this isn't about which of us could be better than the other, but, but we could look to God and bring out the best in everything, well, then we would flourish. But that's not how we work. 
And so you see within the Bible, an example that I'll give you comes from the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers, after, uh, in the book of Exodus, God's people are brought out of this terrible oppression where they've suffered under the powers of the Egyptian nation. They're being brought to an inheritance, to a promised land, but, but the, the path is not as clear as it would be if you Google mapped, you know, Cairo to Jerusalem. It should not take 40 years, even if you're walking. And there they are, wandering in the wilderness, wondering uh, what's happening. And, you know, it's been long enough since we've felt the pain of their enslaving us that the reality of a, of a land flowing with milk and honey now seems like a fantasy. And so at least the food was good. <laughs> and so we want to go back. And so they start to grumble uh, because they've been worn down. It's, it's the wilderness experience. What happens, um, not when there's a sudden anything coming against you, but when you're just tired of going on, well, we start to grumble, we start to complain. Is that not what COVID has done to some of us? You know, it started out, stay home for two months, wait, wait this thing's out and we'll be back. You know, two months, wow, that's a long time. And then six months in, eight months in, and you're starting to be really tired of anyone that you live with or anybody who shows up in your Zoom screen. You know, that human grumbling, we're just worn down, we turn against one another, and so it happens among God's people. And there's a guy named Korah, and he's a Levite. So the Levites were quite a special tribe. I mean, Moses and Aaron, the key figures in this whole section of the Bible, are of the tribe of Levi. And the Levites had a special opportunity um, in serving God, but, but Korah's particular family, his particular group, they weren't priests. They weren't on the inside. They didn't go into the tabernacle, but they sort of helped with the things on the outside. Really important, really valuable. Um, anybody should look to them with thanks for what they were doing and to recognize the special privilege that they had. But they started to get tired and say, here we are, <laughs> you know, all these things outside of the tabernacle. And why do Moses and Aaron get to be the ones in charge and call all the shots? And, and the broader context, when you read about Moses, Moses did not seek to create a community for himself or to be a leader. He was called by God and he was reluctant. I'm weak. I can't go. I'm not the one that's going to be the mouthpiece of God. And he was sent not just to be a leader of his people, but at a time when the most powerful human being, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that he could fathom, he needs to go and offer a correction to him. Moses didn't sign up for this job. He didn't feel up for it. God said, I will be your strength. And Moses didn't love the job as he's leading people through. You can read in the book of Numbers, he's constantly saying, oh, Lord, <laughs> I can't take it. Raise up other leaders. This is too much. He was warned that even in, back in Exodus in chapter 19. Uh, you need other people to share this. And Numbers 12, before we really get into the grumbling, has this description of Moses as being uniquely humble. And so to the degree that we get a picture of a guy that's not power hungry, not seeking this, and, and takes the responsibility that God is the leader, but he's God's mouthpiece, he's God's servant, and he's faithful. That's what the Hebrews describes Moses as. Not the greatest leader who ever lived, but Hebrews begins by talking about Moses, who was a servant over God's house. But in that service, there would have been some status. People would have noted his authority. They would have respected him. And so Korah, as is typical in human hearts, wonders why do these people get to call the shots when any of us could do it? And in a period, Korah's rebellion, you could read this number 16. Um, it's not just him, but it's a couple of people from Reuben and about 250 who then say, you know what? 
we're not going to take this anymore of your being in charge, Moses. Uh, but again, Moses wasn't in charge. God was in charge. When they opposed Moses, what they were doing is they were opposing God. And so God tells everyone, get away from Korah and this group. If they want to see who I'm with, have them come. It was an opportunity for them to say, wait a second, did God say that? Well, let's seek God in this. But they, they stayed their course. It's us versus Moses. They weren't thinking about God and what God wanted and what God's purposes were and the fact that Moses was never to be celebrated. Moses was to lead everyone in celebrating God. They seem to have lost sight of that to some degree. And so God says uh, to the rest of the community, don't stand with that crowd. And then the earth opens up and swallows Korah and the Reubenites and this crowd around them. They sought to exalt themselves, but literally they, they were lowered into the depths of the earth. A terrible judgment, a picture for us. Uh, but then you go on in the genealogies in the book of Numbers, and, and there's this interesting, I think it's Numbers 26, I'm now forgetting, but there's this one line when it goes to the, the Levite tribes. Um, the sons of Korah remained. So Korah, his immediate family and his followers died, but, but God did not cut off his line. And it's a sign of God's grace. God is not some proud, you know, finicky deity that just destroys everyone who asks a question. Um, but he preserved this line. And so then you go to the title of Psalm 84. Read Psalm 42 and 43. Psalm 46, uh, some of our favorite psalms. It will say uh, on it in the title, a, 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 a psalm of Korah. A psalm of the sons of Korah. And it's remarkable. Here's a Here's somebody that should have lost their place among the Levites. And now here's this psalm where in the days of David, when he builds the, te the, the temple, he invites the sons of Korah to come back. <laughs> come back and serve in the temple. He doesn't make them the high priests so that they go into the secret places, the holy places, but he makes them gatekeepers. Um, really important role that actually when people come to Jerusalem, it's a visible role. You're seen as part of this important crowd and you have a guarding job that doorkeeper component is really essential and here they are um, participating writing the words that lead God's people in praise and so here thousands of years later the sons of Korah not those who who wanted to be greater than God's greatest servant but those who understood that no one was greater than God helps lead us in worship and they got to the point where they said I don't need to be the king and covet David. Um, but I will take a place serving in the courts of the temple. And so verse 10, a famous line from this psalm, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I uh, see these sons of Korah don't take that lightly. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of God. These are people who have said, I'm, I'm not thinking about my greatness or the greatness of the people around me, but I've seen the greatness of God. And if God makes me the king, wonderful. And if God makes me the guy that sweeps the floor, wonderful. I would rather be the gatekeeper. I, I will be content with the doorkeeper because I have a place among God's house. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> I'm with this group that travels to come into the presence of God. And it's that picture of, of a lesson of people that have learned what, what the pride of our ancestors did 
as opposed to really looking at the greatness of God and, and having a joy from that. That strengthened them to then be the kinds of people who are contributing to God's worship, to God's leadership. Now the sons of Korah are not remembered as the rebellious group, but as the God-leading group. And that's the nature of what happens when you, when you encounter God and his power. It's different than human beings, because God doesn't have ego, corruption, sin like we have. Um, this guy named Andy Crouch, and he has an interesting book called Strong and Weak. I think that's what it's called. Maybe it's called Strength and Weakness. I'm now not forgetting exactly, but the theme is strength and weakness. And uh, he's a Christian, and he says that for flourishing to happen in life, you actually need both. And he says, most people don't think of weakness as something you need, because when you feel weak, it's something you don't want. But he says in his studies that he's found that actually strength is something that people also have discomfort with. And, and for human flourishing, we need to have both authority and vulnerability. Those are the terms that he uses. And he says the problem is most human beings go one direction or the other, towards strength or towards weakness. And, and here he plots out on an axis where he's got strength and, and uh, weakness, vulnerability. And he has these four quadrants. So I don't know a lot about fitness. You engineering people are also looking at me and saying, where's he going with now plotting a course in the axis? It's, I'm only providing two, and I will give you no data other than what happens in each of these uh, four squares. So what he says is when you have strength, when you have authority without vulnerability, the tendency is to be exploiting. But when you have vulnerability without authority, then the tendency is to be suffering. So one person causes trouble in others, another person is always troubled and can't get out of it. But what's interesting is those are not the only two options. He talks about the person that has neither strength or vulnerability. Those people are withdrawn. See, if we get this wrong, it's a problem. But he's, he's talking about this combination of strength and vulnerability that then leads to flourishing. And he gives examples like with parenting. A parent needs to be firm and a parent needs to be kind. Uh, studies have shown that kids that grow up in that kind of household flourish. If a parent is firm, that will help the kids get forward, but if they're not kind, it breeds resentment. If the parent is kind, the kid appreciates that, but if not firm, then, then the child's not motivated to go anywhere. Um, and the worst, if you're neither firm nor kind, is you, you're, you abandon your responsibility to the kids. The goal is to be strong, to be firm, to have authority, but not to be authoritarian, and to be kind, to be compassionate, to love your kids. And when you create that context, your kids flourish. Now, now, Crouch does this because he's trying to help us learn how to grow, not simply as human beings, but in godliness, because is that not a picture of the nature of the God of the Christian faith? Uh, see, lots of people believe in God, but God is typically thought of in his power and authority, that's true, but then you get these authoritarian forms of religion, whether they're cults or whether they're uh, some kind of radical extremists or whether it's just something that, that sucks the life out of people because God is powerful but nothing more. God is out there, distant, unknowable. And in sort of modern spirituality in a place like New York, we like the vulnerability. We like the grandfatherly God who's kind. But there's no power or authority. When something goes wrong in my life, I don't look to God to fix it or wonder how it happened, but I just go to God who will listen to me when I talk. But Christianity uniquely presents God who is more powerful than we could imagine, but more kind and merciful 
than we can imagine. And you see that in Jesus Christ, where, where everything we read about God comes to its fullness, that God who created the heavens and the earth and his power over nature, this man, Jesus Christ, in the midst of the storm said, be still. And it was calm, the power of the creator, his authority over demons against the religious leaders. Jesus comes with power and authority. But he comes with such great kindness that not only is he a magnet to the weak and the suffering and those without status, but he hands himself over to the authoritarian types who have no vulnerability and kindness to kill him. And he does that because what we're told is the Christian message is the nature of the God of the Bible, omnipotent, mighty, uniquely powerful, is a God who lifts up the weak by entering into that weakness, by becoming vulnerable. That's the Christian vision of God, that God is no less strong, but God is no less merciful and kind. And it's that picture that we say when we fix our eyes there on the one that God has sent to say, if you want to get on the highway to Zion, if you want to go towards God, well, follow my son, he will lead you. In that, we find that we are strengthened. Because when we're falling behind, we have that authoritative person that says, keep going, there's more for you. And when we get ahead of ourselves and become proud, he says, calm down. This is not about you, but there's something greater. And there's something in that vision that's not just a teaching, but comes out of the spirit of Psalm 84. Have you seen the loveliness of the courts of God? Is that the goal, the dwelling place? There's something about the greatness of God to say, we want to get closer to that. And therefore, our weekly gatherings to say, let's remember Jesus Christ, the picture of the God in his power and his mercy, his authority and his kindness is utterly unique, not only to make us more kind, maybe people at their best assume that's what Christianity does, although we don't always have a reputation for shining with kindness, but also to make us stronger. And people don't realize Christianity is the source of the only true strength, the, the strength of the one who can move the mountains and open up the land that swallows up people. He says, come and receive my grace. And when we see that and the goodness of it, it, it creates a longing in our heart that that goal is there. So not only are we going forward, but as we go forward, we're looking upward. So now here's the last thing I'm going to talk about is outward. If we are moving forward towards this, the end of a life that would be pleasing to God, and if we're looking upward for God's strength today in that weekly pattern, then there's, a, there's an outward component. So, so the, the rhythm of God's people is we, we come together once, once a week and we pray and we admit our need and we seek God for his guidance and his strength and his encouragement and then we go back out. And so whatever's happened the week before, we bring with us. And that's where you can't have this disconnected life that religion is one piece of it. But, but if you're living your whole life on a path towards deepening with God, then whatever happened this week, the great and the terrible, you bring in with you. <laughs> And you look for God to show you. Where is he going to help you? Where is he going to encourage you? Where is he going to guide you? In our gathering, his spirit works through what we sing and what we pray and what we hear. And then you find yourself thinking, what am I to do this week? And God gives you something. And look, I'm not always saying that it's clear that you walk out of here each week with a mandate, but, but God does something in our lives when we gather to seek him, to, 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 to set our minds on that great shield, the one who bestows gifts. And then we go out into the world it readies us for the unknown, whatever we're going to face this week, that something God will give you will strengthen you. And it could be traditional strength that you need to be the courageous person that helps somebody. It could be the Christ kind of strength that you come alongside the weak without overwhelming them, but you could be present with them. The weekly pattern is important for that. Um, and so in verse 6, it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, 
they make it a place of springs. And actually, we don't know anything about Bacca. It's a sort of a unique word. Uh, most people assume, if they assume it's a place, by it being described as a valley, that imagery in the Bible is often sort of a vulnerable place, uh, a difficult place. But some, some um, connect the concept of, of Baca with, um, with weeping. So yeah, we go out, sometimes we, we come to church to remember the greatness of God, but it doesn't mean that instantly our lives are better and we go out to a perfect world or a perfect life. We go back out, sometimes to the mountaintops to see something wonderful, but sometimes he leads us the next week in a valley. But he says, but as they go, these people that have have longed for the courts of the Lord, and they've come and they've assembled. <laughs> then they go back out on this pilgrimage, and they, they plan on coming back, but when they go out, sometimes they go through a valley where it's dry. But they make it a place of springs. If, if, if the Spirit has come into us and strengthened us, we bring it with us. And, and I do think one of the, the impacts that COVID has been having has been, it's, it's more that valley of dryness, of just wearing us down slowly. And, and look, it takes shape. In, in different ways in each of us, in terms of our, our rhythms, our lifestyles, our experiences, how we're wired. But for most of us, it's, it's making prayer harder, personal prayer. It's making coming to church harder. Um, but what we're told is, if you have that vision, that longing for the greatness of God, then don't get discouraged if you feel spiritually dry to say, well, I'm just not good at praying, so I won't do it. Or God must not like it except me, so I'm gonna just go my own way. But remember that gospel vision. God sent Jesus Christ to meet us in our weakness. So there's certain kinds of weaknesses that you could appreciate. If I love God, but I'm physically sick, well, surely God will be with me. But one form of weakness is our dryness, our emotional turmoil. And what we're told is not to just stay there, um, but also not to be tempted to give up. And so in a period of spiritual dryness, I, look, I don't know if you felt like coming to church today, our church will not be so revolutionary that in anything we could plan or do, it will change your life. But sometimes God does a mighty thing that we can't plan and he just comes down and he does change a life for the life of a whole community. But our assumption is, in our gathering at the least, he's going to strengthen us. He's going to help us. He's going to help us to go back this week to whatever it is. And if it feels a bit like a valley of weeping, um, the spring of life and the spirit in you, you may not feel his warmth, uh, but he will be with you, and, and therefore, as you go and you keep seeking him and seek, living, seek to live by faith, it's not simply that his spirit will sustain you so you won't die of thirst, but, but that your going will be a means of providing springs of water. Because look, we live and work with people who are going very different directions in life, and we want to invite them on this path, but not all want to hear it. But we're told to come and be strengthened and to go and to love your family and your neighbors and your roommates and your coworkers. And we're told that when we go with the strengthening of God's firmness and kindness, well, then we have water to bring to our neighbors. And the hope is that they would see that the springs are not in us, but are in God. Uh, but is it not good enough for this week if somebody would be strengthened and encouraged because of something of God's work in us as we go to them? And so here's the encouragement for us as we're struggling, as we're failing, as it just seems harder to, to be excited about our faith, to be sacrificial, how do you love your neighbor when I'm just tired, I've got enough, you know, trying to figure out how to get through this next Delta variant season. We're worn down. It could seem like it's, like we go through the valley and we're not going to make it. So we've got this wonderful grand vision that's so grand that I no longer relate to it. It's so wonderful that it seems like I'll never make the next marker. But that's where you break things down to small things. I don't need to get 
to Zion this week. <laughs> I need to get to the gathering of God's people and to be reminded that he will feed me. He will uh, provide for my thirst. And week by week, that pattern to say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm re- grappling with unbelief. I'm grappling with resentment. I feel spiritually dry. Don't come as a religious rule, but come with the expectation that God can strengthen you. And so what is the hope? Verse 7, each one appears before God in Zion. See, there's a group of pilgrims, a group of people in whose hearts are the highways. But in the corruption of our hearts, there are all sorts of twisted paths. And in the outward temptation, there are all sorts of discouragements that say it's not worth it, or you won't make it, or maybe you're just not one of those good Christian types. There are so many ways that the discouragement comes, that that coming together week by week and saying, look, this is not about my track record this week, but it's about the goodness and the kindness of God. It's about the rightness of his ways. And if I take hold of that, uh, I have strength for the week, the upcoming week, W-E-E-K, even if I am weak, W-E-A-K. But what we're told is week by week, if you do that, you don't need to, to have your whole life figured out. But if you set your hearts on God, which is where he wants to orient you, uh, each one will appear before God. Um, And those who have known God's grace and love will appear him before him with joy, with thanksgiving, um, that when the race is over, uh, we will find it has been worth it. And God's springs have, have quenched our thirst, and God caused something to go out from us to those around us. And so move forward, my friends, this week. Walk with God. But look upward. There's something greater than your studies or your workplace or your house project or the vacation you're planning or the thing you're buying. Um, Remember, God is above all of these things. Have that vision, but then go out into the world with that strength, a strength that is in God. Blessed are those whose strength is in God. If you are in God, you have a strength. You can can face whatever you will face this week. Um, And if you can't face it alone, let's come back next week and find out how to help you do it together. That's what a community is about. Let me pray for us. Our Father, some of us here really are strength. Some of us have, are strong, have physical strength. Some of us are quite accomplished, quite good-looking, quite talented. But every single one of us has large areas of vulnerability. Some of us struggle with shame. Lord, if we're honest, we're all in tune with our weakness. And Lord, we live in a world that provokes and taunts us or, or tempts us to compromise. And Lord, there's something in Jesus Christ radically different. And we're not smart enough to choose it. We're not strong enough to hold on to it. Um, or may we be humble enough to receive it. And so send your spirit again. Uh, fill, renew our hearts. Um, strengthen us with the true strength that we would not go out with arrogance and pride, nor would we go out completely defeated, but that you would give us what we need for the week ahead, whatever we are to face. Prepare us so that in it we would look for you and that you would be with us as our sustainer. And uh, Lord, if we, if we are not the ones facing a challenge this week, give us more strength than we need so we could be watching for what you're doing in the lives of our neighbors. So maybe we would have some strength to share, to help others. Maybe we do that not in pride, but um, with courage and for your glory. And help us as a church, Lord. We have lots of weakness, but you have been so kind to us this year and a half especially. Sustain us, build us. May we uh, see that you are overall. And may we be a community that worships with gratitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.